following is a Podcast 225 production. The Movers. The Movers. The Shakers. The Shakers. The People. The People. If it matters to the capital city, the region, and beyond, you'll hear it here. This. This. This is the Clay Young Show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Podcast225.com. Episode 289 is starting right now, and it features a follow-up on episode 288 where we talked about this documentary that had been produced and was going to air on WAFB-TV, the CBS affiliate here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's called Sold in the South, and it dealt with sex trafficking. Man, it's hard to watch. If you watched it, you know what I mean. You know the details in there were really just like mind-boggling. And these ladies who were featured in the documentary, man, to go through that even as early as eight years old and just I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. But uh, anyway, this week's show features what was a YouTube and Facebook Live discussion between one of the photojournalists who put this together, Rick Porsche, and Dana Hunter, who's at the governor's office of human trafficking prevention. And we spoke for about 30 minutes. It aired live across social media for WAFB and and CYE, and uh, this is just the audio of that conversation if you didn't catch it live. And we go into more detail about the documentary in the discussion, and you learn a bit about what the state intends to do, why this is such a problem, a little bit more insight on some of the conversations with the survivors, with Rick and Darren, things that we didn't really want to give away too much before the documentary had a chance to air. So here is audio from that discussion earlier this week. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this Facebook Live, YouTube Live here in the studios of WAFB. I'm Clay Young, and this is a collaboration between WAFB and Podcast 225, photojournalist Rick Porsche and Dana Hunter with the Governor's Office of Human Trafficking Prevention. And I got through that in one take. Thank you very much. Uh, We're here to have a follow-up conversation about Sold in the South, the very well-done documentary that aired this past Sunday night at 10.30 here in Baton Rouge. And um, Rick, I'll start with you. Your first thoughts and some of the first feedback you got after the the doc had aired was what? Um, it's a hard thing. Thanks for doing this first, Clay. You got it. Because I don't know if I could have <laughs> yeah, pulled those together. I, I've been in it for the past year. Um, the first thoughts, I, I started getting text messages saying, wow, I didn't know this was happening in Baton Rouge. Right. I didn't know this was going on right here. Um, and that's kind of been the reaction this week is people kind of starting to open their eyes to what's actually going on. And that was exactly what we were hoping for mm-hmm. with the documentary is to get people to realize what's happening and start that discussion. And so we think we're headed in the right direction yeah what was one thing because i've known you a very long time what was one thing when it was over with you said i should have put that in there god there was so much (laughs) there was so much uh, and that's part of the reason i'm going to plug our podcast right now yeah because uh, that was part of the reason we did the podcast we've got a we've got an audio podcast version of sold in the south yeah uh, that you can get on spotify and apple 
and uh, things like that. But um, that we were able to expand the stories. We only had a half hour mm -hmm. to tell everything, right? And the, the four versions of the four episodes of the podcast go for about an hour. Okay. And you get a little bit more in depth into Sherry's story, into Miss Veronica's story, into Metanoia, and we deal a lot more with what's going on statewide. Yeah. And what's the, knowing the signs, figuring out what's happening out there. And what you can do and where to go next. So, Dana, and that's why we kind of wanted to do this. Dana, you basically have, have stood up this office and have been a rock star in this effort. Uh, first up, your thoughts about participating in this documentary with Rick and Darren DeQuano and what your expectations are after it's aired. Yes, thank you, Clay, uh, for having me. And My Rick. pleasure. Um, it was just an honor. I remember when uh, Rick <laughs> approached me months ago <laughs> about the possibility. Almost, yes, yeah, it was a while a about the possibility of this documentary. And there were some, initially there were some reservations because, you know, we didn't know what angle it would come from. There's so many uh, myths and assumptions yeah. about human trafficking. Um, even working with survivors, people, um, it's a very sensitive um, area mm -hmm. when, when working and telling survivor stories. So we wanted, we just wanted to make sure everything was done in a victim-centered and survivor-informed manner. And I'm so thankful to Rick and his team because they consulted with us every step of the way. They got guidance from us. And I must say that the documentary was done with excellence. It was victim-centered yeah. and survivor-informed. So you said something that I want to go back to. You talked about myths, and Rick and Darren and I talked about this because it's such a, a not. A, it's not a normal yes. topic of conversation. So for the average person watching or listening, what's a big myth, or what are some of the bigger myths out yes. there about this? When people think of human trafficking, they think of India or, you know, foreign countries. And human trafficking is in every state in the United States, mm -hmm. in every town. It's likely on our streets. It's in the restaurants that we go to. It's, it's, it's around us all the time. Yeah. And another thing, another myth is people think, well, this is just prostitution. Mm hmm. And so I was happy that the documentary was able to highlight, was able to highlight, this is not just prostitution, even Sherry's story. Um, oftentimes these women are forced into prostitution mm -hmm. and there's some criminal standing waiting to victimize them, yeah. to abuse them uh, brutally if they don't do that. And in some cases, it's apparent. One one of the things that Sherry told us, and I don't think it made it in the documentary. I know it made it into the podcast. Was that, um, and it, we might have that soundbite here, but the feeling she had afterward. People look at these victims as prostitutes. Mm -hmm. They think that they've made the choice, that they've done this on purpose, that it was their decision that they're prostitutes. They don't see them as victims. Even the victims themselves, a lot of times, don't see themselves as victims. They think they decided to do this. And uh, that's part of the thing that I was shocked about. Yeah. Because I, I look at people differently now. When I see people on the streets, I... Explain that. Explain that. I told that. you in, our, in the first podcast, yeah. this thing has changed me. Yeah. I see people differently. I, I try to look past that first image I get. Yeah. And to figure out what's going on with this person. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, tr I, I try really hard not to make that first assumption. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
And, and it's a difference. And that's the power of education mm-hmm. and knowledge. The more we get the word out that this is real, this is mm-hmm. happening, um, victims are forced against their will, and that is what human trafficking is. It is different from sex work. Mm-hmm. Sex workers often choose that life. And there are some sex workers who believe they're sex workers and still are not sex workers. But then there are victims who did not choose that life. And that's what human trafficking is. Mm -hmm. It is the coercion using force, fraud and coercion and forcing folks into sexual acts or labor against their will. So one of the things that they explain in the documentary is the lack of resources for survivors, right? Victims of, of, of sex trafficking. And I can't for the life of me understand why that would be a difficult thing to fund. Can you can you help me understand it? Yes. Well, the important thing to know is that human trafficking is just coming to the surface over the last and getting attention over the last, I'll say, five to 10 years. And so resources are now surfacing really at the national level Mm -hmm. um, and it's trickling down to the states. What you got to remember, Clay, is these are not the typical women you you have in in a battered woman shelter. These are not people you normally have in a homeless shelter. These victims need very specialized yes. care. They need medical, they need psychological, they need emotional support. They need um, they need those uh, resources. Yes. And, and a lot of these shelters, the, the traditional shelters for battered women, for our homeless youth, don't have those resources. And that's what makes, that's why there's so few yes. um, nationwide right now, I think. Yes. And, and that's where I think states need to start, if they really want to start tackling this problem, that's where they need to start. Absolutely. And, and to that point, very quickly, having specialized trauma-informed professionals, trauma-informed therapists is so important. Because knowing the language, yeah. you know, under not victim blaming, uh-huh. all of those things are so important. And so it's not just traditional. The traditional therapy may not right. work. Um, the, the traditional model may not work for a victim of human trafficking. So, you know, I don't remember um, where it was in there, but I remember Rick mentioning to me in one of our first conversations here about some of these children who are victims of this go into classrooms, and in some cases, they're recruiting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, talk about that a little bit. I, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Dana okay, handle that go ahead. because she's the, she, she and Monica are the one that opened my eyes to that, and they can tell they can talk about that much more than I can. Yeah. So, traffickers are um, they are using various techniques now, including using victims in their harem. So, most traffickers have four to five victims at a time, and they are profiting. Um, they may have a quota. The victims may have a quota of $10,000 a night. We've heard some victims say mine was $5,000 a night. What? What? And so the traffickers then use their victims um, and they send them to school to recruit other victims into their harem. Hold up. <laughs> Wait. The qu- qu- quotas? Yes. So uh, victim survivors have shared with us that um, because we have to remember human trafficking. Why would anybody do this to a human one? Yeah. But these perpetrators and exploiters, they extort these victims. And so the victims have a quota of between 5,000, 10,000 or more a night. 
They have to go and perform sexual services um, or labor services every day. They don't get days off, seven days a week. And for sex, uh, sex trafficking, those victims may have to perform 13 uh, sexual services for 13 or more men and women a day. And so if we can only imagine the trauma because they're trying to meet that quota. One survivor shared that her that she made her trafficker ninety thousand dollars in one night. That was all manner of carjackings, theft, robberies, credit card fraud for the people who come in and, and buy their services. Yeah. So it's just horrific. And one last thing. When we talk about the quota and having to perform all of these services for 13-plus people a day, the Asian-American women who are in the massage parlors say they have to serve 35 to 40 men or women a day. And they are victims. We have to know sometimes if we're going to get a massage that we may be getting a massage from a victim. Because we've been um, in conferences and we've heard from Asian American women who said, "I was I was a victim. I was raped mm-hmm. thirty five times a day." How does someone? And uh, I know Joe's going to play some sound from Sherry in just a moment. But I, how does one get to the other side of that? Someone who gets out. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that has to be rebuilt psychologically, emotionally, all those things. How, how do you build someone back up after that? Yes. So the journey and uh, the journey to healing and recovery is long. It's it's it, it's long and almost never ending. Yeah. And so having those mentors, supports, um, people in place to say we see you. Victim mm-hmm. survivors often tell us just being seen, being heard. Mm-hmm. Documentaries like this brought healing even for um, the survivor uh, Veronica and Sherry. Just being able to reach out and tell their story is such healing. Well, let's hear from uh, from Sherry, who was featured in the documentary that aired last week. There's a lot of guilt and shame that comes with um, with being trafficked, with being sold, because you do feel like it's your fault, like how you didn't see this coming. Um, and it's shameful. And looking back and thinking men were okay with purchasing me as a child. And nobody thought, or even the, the males that were in that parking garage with me, and nobody thought to say, but how can we help you? So, you know, that leads me to this next question. We were talking about this before we started the podcast. Rick referenced it, having done this and how it makes him look at people a little bit differently. Most people walking the streets aren't clinicians. They don't know what signs are glaringly out there you don't know what to look for so if you are somewhere and you have a suspicion what is the thing you should do yes i think understanding that everybody may not have the tools don't try and intervene to rescue that yeah. uh, potential victim yourselves because it's dangerous mm-hmm. um as i mentioned before human trafficking i wanted to say is a 150 billion dollar industry 150 billion dollars 150 billion dollar industry and every victim has a price tag attached to them and so you know their perpetrator is often close by watching them and so if someone sees something suspects something you don't want to just intervene make a phone call to Louisiana State Police you can make a phone call to the national hotline you can even pass that victim a note to say if you 
need help, here's a number that you can call. Something as simple as that um, is helpful hmm. to a survivor. What is that hotline? Yes, so... Uh, yeah, we don't have it. It's, I don't. I'm, it's, it's. We'll get somebody in here to look it up so we can it. have it. It's, so, it's on the website. Somebody will shoot me a text so I can say it, say it on here. So, you know, I, it's a difficult question to ask, but I got to ask it. What kind of person would do this to another person, particularly a child? Yes. So you know they say uh, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Often, exploiters, um, perpetrators come from very uh, traumatic backgrounds themselves. Yeah. They yeah. were abused. They were exploited. And then they grow up and they, they that's learned behavior that they inflict upon others. Well, you know, we're going to hear from Veronica in just a second. And one of the things that I want to ask you about after we hear her sound is the initial few minutes that you were talking with them, because this is a tough thing uh, for for someone to be able to relive as they're telling it to someone in front of a camera. But here is Veronica, who was also featured in the documentary. I was still a child. I was a child with a child. And I still was doing childish things. So I wasn't an adult because I had a baby. Made him really grow up like almost like brothers and sisters. And so, believe it or not, we used to go to school together. We sit on the same corner and rode on the same school, but we was on welfare with my son. I even went to the people that was that was working our case. I told them to help me, and they would. Oh, you go it on. You you can take that. You're gonna be all right. I remember the late telling me, you're gonna be all right. And instead of telling, I need help. It wouldn't help me. So I go right back to the same thing, and I end up with another child. Much about her story is fascinating and saddening at the same time. By the way, uh, the hotline number is 1-800-434-8007. That's 8007. You can also get it at wafb.com backslash sold in the South. So we work faster. See, we got that information. Um, But thinking about what she went through 11 year old mother riding a school bus with your son and having to she had three kids before she was 15 four kids four kids was 17 before she was 17 and there are two things that come to mind watching her and seeing her in this documentary one she may be one of the strongest human beings i have ever seen in my life and two no one should have to live a fraction of her childhood. Right. Why don't y'all talk about Veronica for a moment? She's an incredible lady. She really is. The first time I met her, she didn't even know that I was going to ask her to do this for the documentary. We were shooting her for something else. For, yeah. For the first lady that we had agreed to do in the process of this. And she sat there for a minute. She thought and she said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I had no idea what her story was. And to ask that first question is, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about how this all happened? And she said, well, I was six years old. And the man who would take me to church would take me after church back to his house. And it just kept going and getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm sitting there watching her, and she's smiling as we're talking about some of these things. And I'm going, how? Can someone who's been through all of this still smile? 
and she says it in the documentary. It's her faith. Right. Um, her faith is what saved her. Right. And to to know that she came through this, and the 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 warm. Uh, inviting, excited, vibrant person she is now is, is is incredible. So one of the other things, Dana, with this particular thing, you talked about resources, but the enforcement part of it, there is a percentage of recidivism among people who do this, who do it, get caught, get out, do it again. Yes. So how do we close those loops? We have lots of work to do. <laughs> Less than 1% of the human trafficking cases are prosecuted. And so we have, you know, our work cut out. How? We um, just making sure um, law enforcement's trained, our judges are trained, um, all of our legal providers are trained in what evidence is needed, what to look for, and, you know, so that even victims, how to tell their story, um, because sometimes survivors may not want to testify against their trafficker. One of the things we have to understand is that there's a um, a trafficking type, an exploiter type that's yeah. known as the Romeo pimp. Right. Survivors okay, have shared. What the hell is a Romeo pimp? The Romeo pimp says all the right things, makes the young, impressionable, or um, person with a disability feel like they're loved feel like this is love, me beating you, me withholding food from you, me doing these things to you is love, um, and, and mainly giving them just the basic necessities. And so sometimes the survivors have this attachment, mm-hmm. this trauma bond to the explorer, and they may not want to testify against them. What about the almost Stockholm syndrome part of this for some of these victims who are deep inside of it, but may not even truly understand because they start to believe that what they're doing is a part of something. What about that? Yes. So we've heard from survivors who said, you know, I didn't even know I was a victim, you know, Centoya Brown. um, She said, I thought this was a part of our relationship. He did this piece and it was my duty to go out and help with rent. Um, one, there's one aspect or form of human trafficking known as family facilitated trafficking or familial trafficking okay. where children and adults are trafficked by their own family. And we often see this amongst children at a very, it starts at a very young age. You know, we see with Veronica. Um, and this is happening all over the world mm-hmm. and, and even here in Louisiana where children as young as two and three years old are sold. You know, Rick and I were talking about this before we, we, sat down to do this podcast and there was a debate over something father Bahi said in the audio podcast he called this slavery yes right and of course that's a very inflamed word it's it it, you know, it it draws all kinds of connotation but his explanation makes absolute sense in context that this is what this is talk about that we originally wanted to call the the documentary Surviving Slavery. Mm-hmm. There's so many connotations and so much negative that goes with that. We've, we were afraid it was going to turn people off. Right. And people wouldn't watch. And so we started talking and throwing around some other ideas and this is what it came to. But think about it. You're taking somebody against their will and you're selling them. Mm-hmm. If that's not slavery, what is it? Yeah. You're selling somebody to another human being. You're selling somebody who you think is a lesser person than you are mm-hmm. to someone else for sexual purposes, for labor purposes, for whatever. That's slavery. Yes. That's yeah. slavery. And when I sat down with Father Jeff the first time and he explained it to me that way, 
and went, oh my God. Yeah. We got slavery going on in our cities. By the way, if uh, if you want to hear him fired up, go listen to the audio <laughs> podcast. He went on a rant. Rick couldn't get in to say anything because he didn't want to be stopped. So let's talk about where this is trending right now. So again, this is not a subject that normally comes up. In fact, this is the most I've engaged this topic since I don't know when. There's a friend of mine who had an organization here that worked with victims of human trafficking, and, and they're now in another state. So I remember going to a couple of the annual galas that he would have. I would support it, donate, attend the whole thing. But in the last couple of weeks, I've talked about this a lot. This is a subject that runs people away because it makes people cringe. It's just they don't want to think about this. They don't want to know about this stuff because it's, it, it's not in their bubble. What impact does that have on us getting results for this? Well, now the conversation is becoming easier to get into circles because it's hitting home. Yeah. It's hitting home for how, some. How so? There's a father um, in Mississippi who lost his 16-year-old son, who he described they had the perfect family. Um, and his 16-year-old son would go up and play video games, and he was solicited online by an exploiter. Um, he engaged in virtual sex, and that person on the other side wasn't who they say they were. They mm-hmm. were an exploiter from uh, Jamaica somewhere. Yeah and began to exploit him for $5,000. He gave it to him. Then ten, the ask was 10000 He eventually, com- he was a famous football player. And they said, you know, we'll, we'll share this tape with all of your peers. Yeah. So Send it to your school. He so, eventually committed suicide. So that's, that's the thing. That's the other side of this. Mm-hmm. In your home, and you don't even know it. That's correct. Which is a discussion a lot of parents have about having phones and computers and the, the, in your house. That's so correct. that how often does something like that happen? Yeah, it's um, Nick Mick reported there was an increase in over a hundred a hundred percent in their cases. Wow! It skyrocketed. Um, they had more than ten thousand reports in one year. Yeah. Recently, and so this is happening across the world. Um, the cyber, this cyber bullying, the sextortion is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, is another aspect of this. So outcomes, what do you want? What What are you and Darren and everybody here at AFB want to come out of this? And then I'll we ask Dana the same know question. know what we wanted <laughs> when we first started this. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we first started, it was like, okay, wow, I've just learned some stuff mm-hmm. that is scary to me and that I think everybody else needs to know and understand. And that was the first thing, was just get the information out there. But as we started talking to people, as we realized that nobody knows this, it's to get the conversation started. Yeah, That's where things begin. People need to be talking about this in their homes, yes. in their neighborhoods. They need to be talking about it in their uh, across the backyard fence. Yes. They need to be talking about it in their civic organizations. They need to be talking about it at church. And, and, the, and all the houses of worship. When you start there, that's when the legislators listen. That's when the people in power go, oh, we've got a problem. We need to do something about it. Let's get motivated and let's do something. But what does that conversation look like? I mean, because if you're leaving church one day and someone comes over and says, hey, let me talk with you about sex trafficking, you know, they might. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how does what, what does that conversation look like? I don't know how to start the conversation. <laughs> like I started I started this conversation with with two survivors of sex trafficking by asking what happened mm. mm-hmm. and being willing to listen and understand and 
being willing to take that step because mm-hmm. that's a tough ask. Yeah. And being willing to say, okay, I don't want to blame you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to point a finger at you. I want to understand what happened to right. you so that I can understand your story and I can show other people what's going on. Yeah. And that's that's the thing is you've got to be willing to understand. Yeah. Yes. And not um, think that we are the experts and that we know it all. Right. That's the purpose of our survivor council. Right. We bring right. the survivors. We say, hey, show us what this looks like. You help inform our programs and policies. But what I'd like to say is, just as Rick mentioned, we have to have this conversation with our young children, with our teenage children, with our nieces, our nephews, so forth and so on, because it does not discriminate. Human trafficking does not discriminate. It comes in so many different forms. We've heard victims who said, I was in college and my roommate invited me to an all-expense-pay-for trip to Las Vegas. That's where I um, was taken in the life of trafficking. We've heard folks say I was in college and working at Waffle House, a part-time job on my way home. I did not make it. An innocent guy asked me for a ride home. I did not make it home. So it looks so different, and I think awareness, giving, um, educating our our family members and saying it does not discriminate. It's not a race or socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Any, it can happen to any one of our family members. Yes. And for people wondering how those ladies are today, what could you tell them? Um, I emailed Sherry after it aired, and she's doing well. I mean, she's right now she's a counselor. She mm-hmm. talks and works with, um, with, with survivors of sex trafficking. She's used to telling her story. She understands what's going on, and she's in that, in that field. Uh, so she's okay. I spoke with Veronica last night, and she said it was tough. It was hard for her to hear the things. She says, I know exactly what I told you, but it was still hard for me to hear me say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's happy she did. She said it felt like a weight was lifted, that she was happy that people know and that people maybe can understand that maybe this helps somebody else. Yeah. If it helps get the conversation started. Yes. That's where it needs to be. And and finally, a couple more questions before we wrap. Talk about the function of the Governor's Office of Human Trafficking Prevention. What all do y'all do there? So the Governor's Office of Human Trafficking Prevention, we're the state lead agency to address and prevent this crime. So making sure we have a statewide model to address this issue, uh, making sure we have resources or a network, a pool that individuals have access to that they mm-hmm. know about, a training, technical assistance across the state, education and awareness, um, our Human Trafficking Prevention Commission that meets um, every other month to research best practices and laws, policies. What do we have in, here in our state? What's working well? What's being enacted? What are the gaps to some of those laws and policies? And how can we make improvements? So we are the end-all, be-all. All right. I'm going to ask you to give the state of Louisiana a grade in how it handles this issue. Yes. Well, let's say the state and then nationally. I have a grade, and they both have the same grade, but I would love to hear your perspective. So, Louisiana, we're receiving national attention mm-hmm. for some of our laws, policies, um, and best practices. And so we, I would give us an A. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. For some of the work that we're doing. Well, it, what, you, what you've got to remember, Clay, is that this is just starting to come to light. States are just starting to work on this. So you can't say, oh, you can't judge it by, hey, this is what's going on. It's been going on for this long. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing anything? You know as well as I do, it takes forever to make good legislation pass through the system. And so I think that's where we are right now. 
the more we get people talking about it, the more we get people pressuring their representatives, their senators, that's where this comes from. But it that's should be an it, easy lift. That's, that's the thing it, about it. It should be an easy lift. Yes. And we've we've had bipartisan support yeah, okay. over the last several years. All this right. has not been a political no. issue. Okay. We have uh, Republican and Democrat leaders, okay. policymakers who have shown support, who stepped up to good. support this. Good, good, good. And then, Rick, there are collateral pieces of information about this documentary. There's the podcast and other things. Where can people find all of that and what does it look like? It's, it's all on our website. It's on WFB. WFB.com. If you search Sold in the South, you'll find it uh, everywhere. Um, we've got the audio podcast is on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. I think it's on Google and a couple other podcast mm-hmm. platforms, and that's starting to trickle out. Um, I would tell people, after you watch the documentary, check out the audio podcast mm-hmm. because it's got some extra stuff in there that we, did, we just didn't have time for it's important stuff it's important information that kind of fills you in on what Sherry's life was like what Veronica's life was like what's going on at Metanoia Manor what the state is doing so it's a lot longer discussions that we can have in those podcasts about what's going on so that's there um, and more than anything start a conversation yeah that's the use these tools to start a conversation in your family and in your neighborhood so anything you want to say in closing? Yes. If anyone's listening and would like to um, get access to more resources, they can go to humantrafficking.la.gov. All right. Well, fantastic job to you and to Darren. And special thanks to Heather, who helped us put all this stuff together, and the whole team at WAFB, everybody here, uh, keeping this thing uh, going. And, man, yeah, I said it to you before off the air. That is one hell of a job for a local news organization to not only want to do this, but to tell that story. And it looked top quality. I mean, it's a hard look. It took I'm not going to lie. It took a couple bites <laughs> for me to get all the way through it because yeah, it's such a hard, hard subject. And I will agree with you. Their strength and demeanor after the fact, yes. you know, I mean, I just I. I wow. Wow, wow, wow. So if I can just add, that was Veronica's first time really unpacking her story. Yeah. And so the courage and bravery that it took to do that, um, we're just so proud of her. Rick said, uh, or maybe it was Darren in in the audio podcast talks about she gives the best hugs. Oh, like she I'm going. I'm telling you, I'm going to get one this Sunday. I'm going going to church this Sunday. I'm going to get a hug because she she is an amazing woman. Well, well, thank you guys for joining us both on Facebook Live and on YouTube Live. We appreciate the hard work done by WAFB and the state. Uh, This has been Clay Young along with Rick Porsche and Dana Hunter. You guys enjoy the rest of your day. Again, thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to the discussion. Episode 290 will feature a conversation about a sheriff's election in Caddo Parish. Now, this one is getting ugly. Henry Whitehorn is the, as of the last election, the sheriff-elect. Well, he won the election by one vote. So you knew the challenger in this was not going to sit on the sidelines and not recount and make a bunch of claims, and that's exactly what happened. I got a lot of thoughts about what's happening up there right now. A lot of thoughts about what the judge is saying could be the case with this and we're going to talk about that next week so we'll catch you there thank you guys for listening 
Tell people you know about the podcast. Like and share when you see us on social media. And we'll catch you next time. Your voice matters. Visit The Clay Young Show at podcast225.com and email The Clay Young Show at clay at podcast225.com. We'll be right back.